Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, there at verse 10. This portion in the Hebrew is called the Yetzi. Comes from the Hebrew expression from verse 10, then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This same covenant, this same promise that God gives to Jacob, we've heard of this before. Going back into Genesis 22, when Abraham took Isaac to this certain place and was preparing to sacrifice him, and God stopped him, and he saw that he would obey God's voice, he said to him virtually these same words, He said, now I see, Abraham, that you will obey my voice. Therefore, I will bless you. And he proceeded to say, and I will give you a covenant. And that uh, in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. So we have a connection now that Jacob is now the recipient of literally the very same covenant, the very same promises that have been given to his father and to his grandfather. Now, there's some dispute as to exactly where was this place that Jacob was at. All we have here in the scripture is to a certain place. And if you go back to Genesis 22, particularly where Abraham took Isaac to that place, um, there is an argument to be made that potentially Jacob is in the very mount, in the very place where his own father and his own grandfather had been in that Genesis 22 event. At least this is the this is the common thinking, and this is the predominant thinking of most of the sages. The reason why I say dominant or predominant is because just slightly to the north of Jerusalem is a place called Bethel. It's a small community, and Jacob will later on refer to the place that he's in as Bethel. Now, we don't know for sure if it was exactly at Mount Moriah, if it was at this small community just north, but we certainly was within the same region. And uh, is uh, and it, it's close enough together to know that there's a connection. Certainly the same words of God are being used here with Jacob that were used with Abraham before. And in fact, probably the consensus position, the, uh, the uh scholars as they looked at this controversy, they said, you know, Bethel's really not so much of a geographic place as it is an encounter with God. And so what Jacob is really having is his first real serious encounter with the God of Abraham. Up to this point, it had been stories and explanations and prophecies by his mother and teachings from his grandfather and father. But now, Jacob is having his own, if you will, experience with God in this particular place. And God uh, uh, does it by way of a dream. This is the first uh, evidence that we have in Torah of a dream being used by God to communicate uh, to a man. And it was very impressive kind of dream 
in which that he saw this ladder. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Um, I think most of you have, where you might go out, say, on a beautiful day uh, or out a night, and you just lay down and you look straight up into the sky. And uh, I don't. if you haven't seen the sky in, in a recent time, there's a kind of a gasp. I don't know about you, but I have this experience. I look up in the sky and it's so immense and so huge that I kind of like... You know, it's just, it's not your normal landscape view. It's, it's just this view of looking up. And then if you were to, um, be standing by something, you're looking up and you're right by something that reaches way high up, it just gives you that sense of depth and perspective, um, that is somewhat awe-inspiring. I remember the first time I went to see the St. Louis Arch. I stood at the base of the thing and I looked up and it was like, huh. You know, the, the thing just stuck right up there in the sky a long ways, and it gives you a sense of perspective. And so part of, uh, part of what Jacob re- responds to us about is that this was a moving experience for him, whether it was the looking up or, or God there or this high ladder reaching all the way into heaven, whatever it was, all of that combined came together to give him a truly moving experience of which he will respond to this uh, immediately thereafter. I want to touch on just a couple of, uh, I want to actually spend some emphasis on Jacob's dream tonight, although we'll touch on some of the other sections in this portion. Because there are a couple of key things that comes from this dream that is going to set a standard that will reach all the way to the New Testament and to the very direct words of the Messiah. Because what's being expressed here is profound. Now, from a purely... Torah study standpoint, let me give you the clue as to why you should be putting all kinds of notes on the margin of your Bible like you really need to pay attention. Just count the number of times the scripture says, behold. When scripture gives you the word, behold, this is a very, very specific meaning. In fact, uh, what behold is understood to be in its deepest and most ancient meaning is, it's a little bit like, um, let's say that uh, uh, one of you is getting ready to have a, a surprise. A gift has been selected for you. And all of us have conspired um, to give you this gift. Well, we've got it all wrapped up. We've, we've picked it out expressly for you. Uh, we put a bow on it uh, and so forth. Uh, And the moment that the gift is given to you and that it's opened, you could use the word behold to explain all of that meaning and feeling. Behold, it's the gift. It's something special uh, that's being provided to you at that moment that you receive. And if you will note here, um, there's a number of beholds. Whenever you see in the Torah the word behold, do not go past that. There's something hidden. It's a treasure. It's been selected expressly for you. Get your treasure. And you know that the New Testament says that in him, the Messiah, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's something about the Messiah. Almost a dead giveaway for a messianic studying Torah. If you see the word behold in Torah, stand by. You're getting ready to receive something special about the Messiah and it's a dead giveaway. It's like a road sign. Something wonderful is about to be shown to you. And in this particular case, it has to do with Jacob's specific dream. Now, 
We'll touch on the latter here in just a little bit. We'll touch on the angels ascending and descending, but I want you to take note of something that it says here in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. I don't know if your other versions of your Bible have this. That's not really the best translation. Actually, the proper translation, the most literal translation should be, and the, st- and the Lord stood beside him. And it's not referring to Jacob. It's referring to the ladder. And the Lord stood be- beside him the ladder. And the Lord is in heaven. And Jacob sees this ladder extending up, and he sees the Lord up there. And, it, and, it, and the translators are trying to figure out this imagery, this vision of what Jacob, and they said, well, the Lord was standing up there. He's way high up there, you know, and, and he spoke to him. And, but, the, but the language was that the Lord was standing beside him. And they don't know what to do with that. They're not quite sure how can you have the ladder being a hymn. But that's what it says. And so the various translators try to deal with this. And it partly has to do with they're not getting the mystery. They don't get it. Let's just real quickly uh, solve the mystery right off the bat. Because Yeshua the Messiah specifically will address this. In fact, it's over in John chapter 1. This is one of my favorite stories of, of uh, some of the men first being introduced to the Messiah, there was this fellow named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, his name means the gift of God. What a name to have. Nathaniel, the gift of God. And Nathaniel, this is a this is a wonderful passage. He's sitting under a fig tree. And we're not real sure exactly what Nathaniel's doing, but he's sitting under a fig tree and Philip comes running up to him. Philip is now with the Messiah and with the other brethren. And he comes running up to Nathanael. He says, Nathanael, we have found him spoken of by Moses and the prophets. We have found the Messiah. And Nathanael, who is another Israelite looking for the Messiah, the hope of Israel, says, well, who is it? Well, it's Yeshua of Nazareth. And he asked the famous question, can anything good come from Nazareth? I don't remember anything in the prophecy about Nazareth, certainly nothing messianic about little dirt water, backstreet Nazareth. You know, this hole in the wall, and literally that's what it was. In the the hills and caves, it was like a hole in the ground. And there was a couple of shepherds that used to stay there and a couple of huts that had been made, and they called it Nazareth. And he says, that, that's the place from there? And... uh, any case, uh, he starts to come forward and uh, the Messiah sees Nathaniel and he says, Behold, there's that word again, Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no guile. Ooh, that sounds good. Sounds like it's from heaven, doesn't it? <laughs> the, that reverb kicking in, huh? <laughs> so anyways, uh, that's that's evidence of the spirit, obviously, brother. Um Anyways, uh, Nathaniel asks the Lord, well, how do you know me? I mean, how can you make a judgment that there's uh, I'm a, a great Israelite in whom there's no God? And the Lord responds to him, and he says very simply to him, he says, I saw you, yeah, you know, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you there. And immediately, Nathaniel has one of these experiences with God. 
And I like to equate these two things back to Jacob's uh, experience with God. And Nathaniel says, he says, well, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Of which Yeshua then responds, and he said, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, this is the reason you believe? He says, I tell you, this is John 1.51 now, I tell you, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A direct reference back to the very experience that Jacob had, the dream. And then he, and here Yeshua very clearly says, it's not angels ascending and descending on a ladder, it's angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, a reference to the Messiah directly. Now, with that in mind, if you go back to what the Torah actually says, and that he saw the Lord standing beside him, then that makes sense. What Jacob saw was God, our Father, standing beside his son. That's what he saw. And this is no unusual thing. This is the same vision that Stephen had. You know, and Stephen there in Acts chapter 7 at the end of the chapter when he's about to be stoned, and he looks up and he says, I see the heavens open. Same thing Jacob did. Same thing that Yeshua told him they would see. You will see the heavens open. And he said, I see the Lord on his throne, and I see one, the Son of Man standing at his right hand. That he saw both the Father and the Son. It's a clear evidence that the Torah is speaking of the same things that we understand to be in the New Testament. That Jacob saw these same things. Now, he didn't know quite how to express it, maybe, necessarily, and the, the wording isn't necessarily coming out directly as we have so direct in the New Testament, but it's very clear that these are connected as to who is who standing there. Now, we'll touch on that just a little bit further, but I want to set the stage there for that these are really pictures and an introduction of the Father and the Son to Jacob that will soon follow. Going back to our base passage in Genesis 28, he makes another reference. The Lord himself says to him, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Interesting Hebrew word for descendants. The same word is used in Genesis 22:18. In other words, the same blessing that was given to Abraham is the exact one being given here to Jacob. And Paul records for us in Galatians chapter 3, a reference to this passage in which that he says, now the promises, this is Galatians 3.16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as inferring to many, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is the Messiah. That in a sense, the promise is that in your seed, in the Messiah, with you, shall come the blessing to all of the peoples. 
Now, the word seed is an interesting word because we know it carries. It's one of those words that's both singular and plural. But the emphasis in singular makes perfect sense. It's about the Messiah in the plural makes perfect sense. It's about us, the descendants and who is in us. But the Messiah, the Messiah is in us, rendering and making us to be the blessing to others. And the scripture tells us clearly that we've been saved so that we might be a blessing. I might be a blessing to others, even as the Messiah came to be a blessing unto us. These promises all tie things together for us. Now, look with me to, again, Genesis 28 and Jacob's response to all of this. This is what the Lord has said to him, but how does Jacob respond? And this is a wonderful passage that I think that... uh, in Jacob's response that we ought to all mark again in our Bibles. Matter of fact, we ought to almost commit um, some of this to memory uh, to it. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. It comes directly in response to how the Lord addresses him personally. Verse 15, and behold, there's that word again. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. will bring you back into this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. That promise made to Jacob is the same promise that God makes to you as a result of you being part of this covenant and a part of of this same relationship with God. Listen to the words that God makes in his promise to you personally. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. And we all have a destiny in the Lord to ultimately be in the land with the Lord. When the Lord comes back, we're all going back over there. We're all going to be with him. Now, you know, one of the great things that we always struggle with spiritually is, uh, I don't know, know if the Lord is with us or not. That's what the children of Israel do in the wilderness. When things get a little bleak, a little tough, you know, I don't know if the Lord's really with me or not. Now, the Lord said it here to Jacob. Even the Lord at the end, the Messiah When he gave the Great Commission, he told the brethren as they went out for the Great Commission, he says, I'm with you even unto the end of the age. You ever heard that famous Christian prayer? It's kind of the, I I refer to it as the, the standard deacon's prayer. Oh God, be with them. You ever heard that prayer? You know, oh God, please be with them. The Lord's already promised to do that. What are we praying for that for? I mean, the Lord's already said he would do that. And he said that he would do it with Jacob and with everybody that was the descendants thereafter. So we don't necessarily have to need to pray. We need to acknowledge that, though. We need to come to terms with it and accept it. And he says, and if I'm with you, I will keep you. I will protect you. I will deliver you. I will be your safety. I'll be your security. I'll I'll be there when you need me. I'll be there. It's a promise. From God. It's a promise that every one of us get. We don't have to ask God to do it. God's already offered to do it. And what Jacob does in response, he says, he says, okay, God, if that's what you do, then you'll be my God. 
And then it goes a step further. This is where it gets a little trickier. And at verse, uh, he went a little bit farther. Verse 22, and this stone, which he'd used as a pillow, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a tenth to thee. That's a kind of an interesting response when you think about it. Okay, Lord, you're going to be my God. And I'm going to recognize that you're with me, that you're protecting me, that you're helping me. And in response to that, I'm going to give one-tenth of everything that you provide to me. One-tenth. In other words, I'm going to acknowledge you in every, every blessing that comes. I'm going to acknowledge you in everything that happens to my life. There's an old um, spiritual law. I'm sure you're familiar with the verse. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's one of the measures of our spiritual life. In the spiritual growth of every man, you can give a lot of lip service to the Lord. You can convince a lot of brethren. But when you actually start giving of your increase to the Lord then that means you mean it. And you really are trusting him. And the difference between those who give lip service to the Lord and those who render praise to the Lord and trust him is they're able to have the freedom to do this expression. And Jacob sets the pace for us in doing so. Now, the... uh, Having touched on those spiritual parts, I want to go back and speak for a moment uh, about Jacob's dream, and I want to specifically emphasize this latter business. Now, we've already spoken specifically to Yeshua being the latter. The Son of Man is the latter to it. But he also says that on this latter, there are angels ascending and descending. And this just happens to be, brethren, one of the greatest, most global, far-reaching teachings of the Messiah that there is, beginning with the Torah and going all the way through the weight of Scripture. In fact, Yeshua specifically makes reference to this, not like he did with Nathaniel, a man who is believing and looking forward to the Messiah. Instead, this time he addresses the issue with a another man who's investigating the claims of Yeshua, and the man's name is Nicodemus, a religious man, a Torah teacher, a teacher of Israel, who goes secretly at night to ask a few questions of Yeshua. And in John chapter 3, if you'd turn there with me, comes one of the most interesting uh, interchanges uh, that's recorded for us. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, of course, is a very famous verse that speaks directly to the gospel. Can I tell you a short story just as a sidebar about that verse so you can see how real that verse is to my life? When I was seven years old, um, and uh, my maternal grandmother took me to church for the very first time. It was a church of Christ in Abilene, Kansas. And I went there the very first time, and they had a program set up for kids in which that they had these beautiful uh, Bibles, zippered Bibles. You know, the, the Bible was zippered, and there was a Bible. And you could get, the church would give you a free Bible 
a kid. A kid could get a free Bible if he'd memorize a verse. Well, man, I, I saw these Bibles, and that was the first time I'd gone there, and that was, like, neat. I mean, I wanted one of these Bible things. And uh, didn't really know what was in it, but I really wanted one of these. And seven years old, well, I said, well, you know, what exactly do you have to do? And so I was asking other people there, as well as my grandmother, and she said, well, there's a list of several verses, and you have to memorize a verse and be willing to say the verse out loud in front of other people. Well, that's, that's like a major test you know, of life, just to go in front of other people and have to say something for a seven-year-old. And I went down through the list of verses, and so and I saw John three sixteen. I said, that'll be the one for me. I'll, I'll do John three sixteen. So I, I worked on it all week long. Man, I got my courage up, and the very next Sunday when my grandmother took me there, I announced uh, that I had memorized a verse and I wanted one of those Bibles. And so they brought me up front there in the church. It was, you know, before the Sunday morning service. And, and they said, okay, uh, uh, he's going to say the verse. And so I got up there and I said, I got my courage up and I said, John 3.16. <laughs> and they said, okay, what's, what's the verse? I said, what do you mean the verse? I said, well, that was it. You told me to memorize that. That's what I memorized, John 3.16. So that next week, I didn't get a Bible. And that next week, my, my uh, great-grandmother, who had John 3.16 on a plaque in her kitchen, man, I was in there studying and reading and trying to memorize that verse off all, and that was the first verse I ever committed to memory. Uh, out of the scripture. It was John 3.16. And I went back and I gave the verse and I got a Bible. I, I got a zippered Bible uh, for John 3.16. I have since learned that before John 3.16 and verses after John 3.16 have some very powerful information in them. John 3.16 is a great verse, but let me tell you what leads up to that verse. Nicodemus is having this conversation with the Messiah. And the Messiah begins to explain about being born again. Some kind of dramatic change coming to a person that is as dramatic as being physically born into the world. And he's describing this about being born, and Nicodemus is just flat confused. What are you talking about? What do you mean you have to be born again? I mean, how can a person get back in the mother's womb? That's ridiculous. And the Messiah, upon hearing the question of Nicodemus, verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? I mean, you can just sense the perplexed nature of Nicodemus in asking the question, and Yeshua answered and said to him, are you, and he poses a question, I love this, because this is typical biblical Eastern logic. This is not Western logic, this is Eastern logic. Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? You see, in Eastern logic, when you really want to get a point across, you don't answer their question directly, you ask another question. And that person who asked the first question, if they'll think 
and they'll answer your second question. They'll get the answer to their question. And as a result, they learn by discovery. It's a very powerful way to communicate to people. And the Messiah uses this directly with this Torah teacher. Nicodemus asks a question. The Messiah asks him another question back. And if you'll think, Nicodemus, you know the answer to this question. And he challenges him. You're a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you don't understand I'll put what the profound impact of a person being born physically, how am I supposed to explain it to you how a person is profoundly born spiritually if you can't understand being born in an earthly way? If you can't see the parallel, then what is it that you think I'm talking about? In particular, he was talking about the water thing. If Nicodemus had just thought for a moment, Israel, all of Israel, when they had their encounter with the living God from Mount Sinai, where God spoke directly to the people, what was it that they had to do? What happened before that? They were born anew. They used to be a nation of slaves, but now they're a nation of free men. They had to be made new. And they went through the Red Sea. And they had to take a bath. There was water involved. You know, the symbols are there. This water has to be involved somehow in this great experience. Time out for just a moment. Let me give you another clue about the portion we're reading. Hold, hold the thought for just a moment. Where is it that Jacob originated from and will go up and have his experience with God? The scripture records from Beersheba, the well of seven. That Beersheba well is very important. Those special waters are real important. They've been real important for Abraham, for Isaac, and now Jacob. And the scripture records it's from the well of seven that he goes to have this experience. And the same thing happened to the children of Israel from the Red Sea, from the mikvah bath. Then they have this experience. And the Messiah is talking to Nicodemus and he says about being born again. It involves water. And he's going, what are you talking about? He says, you're a teacher of Israel. You never heard the concept. You don't have any idea what we're talking about. And then he puts to him even further. He lists off two great teachings about the Messiah from the Torah one we call the greatest teaching the Messiah, the one we call the least teaching the Messiah. And he gives him a range. He says, you're a teacher of Israel. Have you not heard? And this is the verse, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the son of man. And he's making reference to Jacob's dream. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. You know the Torah. Surely you know about the teaching of Jacob's ladder. You know, the one with the angels ascending and descending from heaven to the earth. 
And you've ever asked yourself a question, what's the ladder? It's the Son of Man. Who has it that's gone up into heaven and who has descended to the earth? It has to be the Son of Man. And so he gives him one of the deepest and most profound teachings of the Torah as a range. He says, you surely you understand that one to the least of the teaching, that of Moses lifting up his staff. Now that's a verse, in fact, it's two verses in the book of Numbers in which that there was these fiery serpents that came in and started biting the people and they started getting ill and dying and and Moses cried out to the Lord and he said, oh Lord, you know, save the people, forgive us. He says, okay, here's what you got to do. And it was the issue of they just didn't trust the Lord, they didn't believe God. He says, here's what, well, I'll give you a little lesson on salvation. He said, Moses, take your staff, make this serpent, a bronze serpent, wind it around your staff, stick it up in the air, and if the people will look on it, they'll live. If they won't look, they'll die. Who has to be lifted up so that when we see, we live? The Messiah. And in fact, in John chapter 8, the Messiah will specifically make reference to this in talking this subject over. And he said, just like Moses had to lift his staff, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What we call the greatest teaching and the least teaching of the Messiah and the Torah. He who has ascended and descended and Moses' staff. It's a great question to a Torah teacher. In um, my own personal studies, and in the course of... uh, the conclusions I've been drawing, and I'm trying to prepare a text that will lay a lot of this out. It is clear to me, and this is a common statement of those that are students of Scripture, that Moses is the greatest prophet of the Messiah. He's the greatest teacher of the Messiah. There is no prophet that holds a candle to him, either Old or New Testament. Moses has more to say about the Messiah and what his purpose is and how he will do it. In fact, he's the one that lays out the whole plan of the work of the Messiah. In a recent conversation um, with a pastor, I uh, made that statement to him, and he and he just uh, you know he just kind of fell into the trap, and he went, "Oh yeah, 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 that's right." And, you know, he's nodding. He said, "Oh yeah, yeah, Moses is the greatest prophet of the Messiah." And I took my Bible and I pushed it over to him, and I said. In that book are the first five books of the teaching of Moses. Why don't you open up one of those books about Moses and why don't you show me where Moses talked about the Messiah? If you believe that to be true, show me where Moses talked about the Messiah. Show me the profound teachings of the Messiah. And he stumbled at that point. He's like Nicodemus. Oh, he's done a lot of study and so forth, but he hasn't quite got it yet. He's not quite had the experience of finding the Messiah in the Torah. Because if you can find him in the Torah, you'll find him all throughout the Bible. You'll find him all the way. And it begins with a certain teaching here about Jacob. Who is it that has ascended and descended? Who is that? And it really explains the great plan of God. That the Messiah shall come from the great mountain of heaven. And he will descend down into 
the depths of the earth to deal with us, and he will later ascend. And then he will descend again. Who is it that has ascended and descended? Who does this thing? It's, this is the work of the Messiah. Do you remember after the resurrection? What's the next big event that we all know from our new covenant experience the Messiah did? The ascension. The ascension. How he went and lifted off from the Mount of Olives and he went back up. And what's the great event that we as in the new covenant are looking for? The descending of him coming back. You see how profound this teaching is of the real great work of the Messiah? We read tonight from Psalms 68. It's quoted by Paul in Ephesians 4. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host. He gave gifts to men. It's prophetic about the great work of the Messiah. He ascended on high. He led captive a host. He gave gifts to men. And we know that one of the places the Messiah went as a result of his death is he went to that place where Abraham was. He went to the place where Abraham and all the saints and somehow he released them from whatever it is they were in suspension or holding. And I'm not sure I fully understand all that took place, but they all came into the presence of God. And they were somehow released. And then furthermore, as a result of his ascension, the gift of the Holy Spirit and all of its resulting gifts were given to us. Just like the psalmist says. In fact, that's what's being made reference to by Paul there in Ephesians uh, 4. And who is it, he goes on to say, who is it that has ascended? Yeshua ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that's where he's at right now. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. Same place he was when Jacob saw the ladder. The same throne of God. The very same place. The place that we already recognize and understand. Now, the question that is posed to Nicodemus, really, the question has already been asked before. It already was in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. I don't know why Nicodemus didn't pick up on this. We call this the Jewish riddle. It's in Proverbs 30, verse 4. Whenever I get an opportunity to sit down with some rabbis, this is my favorite verse I get to share. It's the same questions that Yeshua asked of Nicodemus. Proverbs 30 and verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Now we know that's got to be God. I mean, there's no question about that. God is the one who ascended and descended. And we know about gathering the waters in his garment and the winds in his fist and so forth. And so it says, what is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. I love the logic, the Eastern logic here. Because you know when it, when it expresses that way, it means you really don't know, do you? You think you know. But for Hebrews, 
what they're trying to struggle with. We think God is, like we said in the Shema, we think God's an absolute one, although the Shema doesn't say that. It says God is a unified one. God is a unified one. That is Adonai Echad. It's, he's not an, we, don't, we don't say that he's an absolute one. We say he's a unified one. Unified how? Unified with what parts? Well, it makes perfect sense if it's a father and his son. Made perfect sense to us when we saw Abraham and Isaac. When they went and they were one and God made a covenant with both of them right there. And there's the picture that there will be a father and he'll have a son and he'll offer up his son as a sacrifice and the Lord will provide in that place the lamb. Here's Jacob. And what does his vision see? What does he see? He sees a ladder and beside him, the ladder is the Lord, the father. He doesn't see an absolute one. He sees two, a ladder, the son of man, and the father. That's the vision. Same one Stephen saw, same one being referenced to. In fact, that's what uh, he's saying to Nathaniel. He had an interesting experience. Wait, do you see this one? Wait, do you see the father and the son together? As he said to Nathaniel, and as he's asking Nicodemus. And this question, sitting in Proverbs 30, verse 4, has been sitting here lingering for millennia, asking all Jewish people, all people of the world, who has ascended and descended? Who is that person? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know it. Now, for us who are in the New Covenant, we have a pretty straightforward and reasonable answer, I think, for it. And it makes perfect sense to us. But maybe this is the part that we need to home in on I think to kind of enrich that for us a little bit. If the latter is the son of man, is the Messiah, then why did Jacob see a ladder and why is the scripture so emphatic about a ladder? And by the way, there's no other references to ladders anywhere else in the scripture. What, what, what is the point of that? Well, if we think just a little bit further, we obviously a ladder gets you to a higher elevation. I mean, if we, if we wanted to climb up uh, to a higher place, we would get a ladder and we'd tip it up against there and we'd go up the steps and we'd get to the higher place. Or if we wanted to go down lower, uh, we'd put a ladder into the hole and we'd climb down there. We'd descend down the steps of the ladder. And it really is talking about there's steps. There's steps. That's what really constitutes being a ladder. So the question is that should be asked, what are the steps of the Messiah? What are the steps of the Son of Man? What is it, why is it that he be, he's being equated to us as um, a ladder? And that's where I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and show you a rather amazing teaching that Paul gives us and I think the reason why Paul is the one who is giving us this teaching is I think that he's the one who really had the vision and the proper understanding because he's the one that keeps making reference to this. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, Paul teaches and he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in the Messiah, Yeshua. In other words, he's going to describe a certain characteristic, a set of traits, an attitude, something that defines and explains the Messiah, Yeshua, to us. And it says, verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. I just described how the Messiah, the steps of him descending and ascending. There are seven steps. There are seven things that the Messiah had to do to lower himself, to get him down to that point, to make the full descent. And we know that he did ascend, but these are the seven steps that he had to do. First step, although he existed in the form of God, he was eternal. He was holy. He was perfect. And he had to step away from that level. He had to lower himself from that. To the level of not regarding himself equal with God. He was equal with God. He was in the very presence of God. He had to separate himself from the presence of God, his own father. And he had to empty himself. He had to literally lose all of the qualities, the characteristics of being the the very person of God. He had to empty himself of all of those things. And then he was found in the form of a bondservant. Instead of being God, he's now a servant of God. And then he had to lower himself to the level of a man. Not even being a servant of God, just being a man, just being a flesh man. And then he had to humble himself even beyond that to be the lowest of men. And then he had to go to the level of death, completely separated from life. Seven steps that the Messiah had to make his descent. It wasn't so much that he was in a a geographic place called heaven and he came to the earth. It was that he had to remove Literally, the very characteristics that constituted his was to take himself all the way to this level. And for us, he's trying to take us back with him. He's come down to our level, to the lowest level, and he's trying to bring us back up with him this time. He had to come this far to bring us back up. Because the fact of the matter is, we're men, we have sinned, and we have earned a death penalty. We, we've got, you, all our days are numbered. As mortals, I tell you right now, every one of you have a destiny to die. It's a fact. It's destined unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. It's, we all share this common destiny. And he says it's from there, from that point of death, he wants to bring us back home. And... Whether we realize it or not, the great work of the gospel is him trying to get us moving in the right direction. Each of us have to be confronted 
with that we have a death sentence over us. We have to be. At, at one point, we've got to get honest about this. We're mortals. We're subject to sin. We're subject to the things that are in this world. And if we want to do something about it, we've got to acknowledge that that's true. We've got to accept that. As we say in the Romans road, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are death. We've got to accept that. That's where we're really at. And it's from there that we begin. And in effect, what do we do? We have to die to ourselves. We have to do the same thing that you should do. We die to ourselves. And how do we do that? We humble ourselves before God. We have to go through that. Then we become in the likeness of men. And we have to learn about goodness and what constitutes good and bad men. And we have to choose to have a lifestyle and to walk in the way of goodness. And then those of us who mature go on to the level of being a bond servant. We become the servant of God. And that's where we're mimicking, we're following the example of the Messiah himself. We're following the example of those in the faith that have gone on before us. Bond servants. And as Paul himself said, as the Messiah himself said in Philippians 2.17, Paul says, I've made myself to be a drink offering and I'm poured out empty for others. And the Messiah did the same thing for us. He poured out his life empty for us. And for those of us who come to the point of bondservant, that's what we're learning how to do. To be a vessel fit for the Lord's use so that we might be poured out empty for the benefit of others. Now, up until the Messiah comes back, that's the most we can do. We can ascend to a certain level with the Messiah and we wait for the moment in which that we can come into the presence of God. Because if you'll look at those levels, the first three have to do with only in the presence of God in the heavenlies and the last are in the earthly, in the flesh, in the mortal form. The best you can do in this mortal form to ascend into the heavens is to be the bondservant of God and empty yourself out for the benefit of others. That's as close as you can get. And we wait for the Messiah to come to finish exalting us in due time, just as he was exalted in his time. The pattern, ascending and descending, that's the pattern. And as the Messiah himself was the one who did it, we are supposed to be following the same pattern. The real answer to the question in Proverbs 30 and verse 4 is that it is the Messiah, and it's us in the Messiah. It is we who are participating with him in that process of ascending and descending. And I can assure you that there is a day coming when we all want to ascend out of the grave. We want to ascend out of this mortal form and come into the very presence of God and to be there with him to be equal with him in the same place with him. Now, we're never going to be gods, as some might take the theology, but we can come into the presence of God and certainly experience God. And that's where I think going back to what Jacob was having is, is that we need to come to that point in our life where we have that wonderful experience like Jacob had. 
I really believe, brethren, uh, in reference to Stephen and his similar experience, when the day comes that trauma comes to this world and to us, and the day comes that some of us are going to be martyred, I believe we're going to have that experience that Stephen had. I believe we're going to have the Jacob's Ladder experience. I believe we're going to look up and we're going to see the heavens open and we're going to see. We're going to see the Lord, his throne, and see the Son of Man standing at the right hand. We're going to see it. Because that's where he really is at and that's where that experience, that's where the real faith is at. Now let me go a step further. We've, we've kind of addressed that and I would be remiss if I didn't cover what the remaining part of this portion is. And... Um, and you're going to think, well, this is completely different. This is a this is a separate teaching, and it's really not. Because we're going to show you how it ties back in together. From this moment, Jacob is now going to make his way to Haran, and he's going to meet Rachel, his future wife, going to fall in love with her, be smitten, and guess where he'll meet her? At a well. Just like Eliezer when he saw Rebecca. At a well. At a well. You remember the story of the woman at the well? At a well. It's always going to be at this well business. At these waters. Something about at the well. Something to take a drink from. Something having to do with having a drink. So um, Jacob makes his way back and he meets up with Laban, the brother of his mother. And we have this wonderful story of Jacob now working for Laban for the love of Rachel. Of course, she has a sister named Leah, at which point after working for seven years, labor to receive Rachel to be his wife, uh, he has one humdinger of a party, a wedding party with all the men, Laban's friends. Apparently there's no ladies involved. And he gets really, I guess, really in a happy mood where he's just kind of semi-conscious. He goes into his wedding bed, and the next morning he wakes up married to Leah. Can you imagine the shock of shocks on that one? At which point he now discovers that he's married to Leah, and he pleads his case, and he receives Rachel as his wife, and he has to work another seven years. So he works 14 years for, um, to receive his two wives. And, in the, and then we have the story shift to these two wives, Leah and Rachel, one that is loved, one that is not, and it's very clear from the scripture and the results that happened, it was God's plan that Jacob marry Leah. It was clearly his plan. As much as it was his plan that Jacob would be the one to receive the blessing instead of Esau, that it's God's plan that Jacob would marry Leah. Now, he gets to marry Rachel too, and there's many blessings that come from that, but God's plan was that Leah would definitely be his wife. And there's this uh, controversy, this uh, conflict, uh, you can't call it really a sibling rivalry, uh, between these two wives uh, vying for the affections of Jacob. Rachel really has him, Leah wants him. And so in this conflict situation, and if you just take this at face value, you, you normally say, well, God's plan can't possibly be working in the midst of a controversy, and here is clear evidence that it does. And by the way, that's the reason why I have learned to say to the brethren, if something weird is going on in your life, controversy and so forth, that's also the plan of God. And if you'll be wise and pe start paying attention to what the Lord is doing, you will learn 
that the Lord is trying to teach you something. The Lord has got, even he is able to turn that to a good situation. Sons. In fact, the first son that she has is Reuben. And she says, see a son. Reuben, surely my husband will love me now. I have borne him a son. And then she has another son. She calls him Simeon. Hated is the meaning of the name. Hated. I have been hated, but God has heard that I was hated. Therefore, he has given me another son so that my husband will love me. Two sons I have brought for him. A third son, Levi, loved. Surely my husband will love me now. I've borne him three sons. And finally, Leah has the fourth son, Judah. Praise. Praise the Lord. God has given me four sons. Surely my husband will love. I mean, my other sisters don't have any. I have four sons. Can you see the excitement? You know, here, Rachel says, oh, my goodness, I'm falling way behind in this thing. I need to start having sons on my knee that I can bounce, you know, take care of. Well, since I can't take care of them, I'll use my handmaid, Bilhah. So she gives her handmaid to her husband. Don't ask me about all the legal ramifications of this. This was ancient times. This is the way it worked. (laughs) And this is back when sex was life, not recreation. And Bilhah bears a son now, Rachel's handmaid, and she names him Dan. The Lord has judged in my favor. The Lord has vindicated me by bearing a son, Dan, in dispute with my sister. And she bore a second son, Naphtali. Naphtali prevailed. I have prevailed with my wrestling and my struggles with my sister. And now I still have the affection of my husband. All this time, Jacob is being bounced around like a ping pong ball, you know, back and forth. But this controversy is going on between these two wives, and these sons are being born and they're being named. Finally, Leah says, well, I can't have any, seem to have any more sons, and, and Bilhah, you know, seems to have any sons, so I'll give my handmaid. So Leah gives her handmaid, Zilpah, to Jacob, and she bears a son, and he call, and she calls her him Gad. Fortunate, how fortunate am I that my handmaid has had another son. And then she has a second son, Asher. Happy, look how happy I am. This another son. Now, I don't know how quickly these were all coming, but they seem to be coming pretty fast. And finally, Leah... Um, Gets a little frustrated with uh, gets frustrated with Rachel, and uh, Rachel has these mandrakes, and so or, or, or Rachel wants these mandrakes, and Leah has them, and so what she does, she, this, this is how bizarre this thing has gotten. Rachel wants these mandrakes, and Leah says, "Okay, I'll give you the mandrakes, but I get Jacob for the night." And she says, "Okay." And so Leah goes into her husband and says, "Look, I paid for you. You know, you're my wages. You know." I bought you. Now, I'm not sure where in the the big uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus uh, concept of marital relationships, how all of this fit. But I don't think that's really what the point of the story is about. It's about the naming of these sons. And so Leah now bears another son, 
a fifth son called Issachar, meaning wages. The Lord has given me my wages, she says. You know, I have borne another son. And she has a sixth son, Zebulun, which means to dwell. And she says, surely my husband will now dwell with me in honor. I have borne him six sons. Way more than my sister's. She goes on to have another child, and this is where the first female, and she gives birth to Dinah. Dinah, the daughter. Now, later on, Rachel will finally have a son. And uh, her son's name is Joseph, which means, add to me, Lord, give me more sons. Add to me, Lord. She finally has a son. And these are the sons of Jacob, the children of Jacob. Now, I want you to take note of The well of seven, seven is always the dead giveaway clue about the plan of God. And if we'll look at the seven children of Leah, the great plan of God, we see an amazing thing take place. It's about the Messiah. It's about the great plan of the Messiah. It's all about the Messiah. Reuben, a son, Simeon hated, Levi loved, Judah praised, Issachar wages, Zebulun dwell, and Dinah which is the symbol of the bride. And so it goes something like this. It tells this little story. The Messiah came as God's son. He was hated by some and loved by others. We should praise his name because he paid the wages of sin and soon he will come to dwell with us and we will be his bride. It's the gospel story. Right there in the seven children of Leah. The plan has always been working out. Now, it's fascinating that God used such a wonderful thing as to what's really going on, born out of the controversy between Rachel and Leah. Jacob did not name his sons except for the last one. Rachel, after they go back to the land of Israel, after Jacob's name is called Israel, there'll be one more son. Israel will name this son. Rachel dies in giving birth to this son, and she calls him the son of my sorrows. But Jacob will change his name to Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Who is the son of the right hand? The Messiah. This Messiah is the son of the right hand. That's the one that Jacob saw, the ladder beside God. The one that Stephen will see later on. I saw the son of man standing at the right hand of God. He's the Benjamin. He's the Benjamin, the son of the right hand. And it will be Benjamin later on in the story who will be the point of controversy in which that Joseph will have to be reconciled with his brother over. When we hear the story of Joseph in the chapters concluding, this story keeps going. It's all about the Messiah. And when we get into the story of Joseph, we're going to see the exact pattern of what happens to Joseph's life is what happens to the Messiah when he comes to Israel. In fact, we'll go through the parallel and show you every point of where Joseph is the pattern 
of the coming of the Messiah to the great work. I'll give you a hint about one part of it. When the sons of Israel cast Joseph into the pit and they sold him, just like they sold the Messiah, when they sold him, he went off and they went back and told their father, oh, he died. We don't know where he's at. In fact, the sons of Israel walked around saying, we don't have any idea where Joseph is. Oh, he's probably dead. No, they sold him. Remember, they sold him to the Midianite traders and he went off someplace else. And we haven't seen him in a long time. He's not around. He's gone. And the same thing happened to Yeshua. They sold him and they put him down in a pit, just like they put Joseph in a pit. And Only he was resurrected. They know that stone was moved. They know he came out of that pit. They don't know where he's at. Oh, he's gone. He, well, he's probably dead. Just like Joseph. He, oh, he's probably dead. He's, he's gone. Only they don't know where he's gone. And he's gone like Joseph. And he's been made in charge. Joseph became the viceroy of Egypt. Yeshua is sitting at the right hand of the father. And very shortly, as soon as his enemies are made his footstool, he's in charge. And then the Messiah will present himself just as Joseph did. And guess what will be the issue? The son of the right hand. Who is the son of the right hand? And to go to follow the story even further, who has to repent first? Judah. Judah will have to repent first, and then his brethren will follow. And the prophecies say that's what will be happening at the end of the age. I will save the tents of Judah first at the end with regard to the saving of all of Israel. Judah will have to repent first. He'll have to begin to make that journey to ascend. He'll have to humble himself. He'll have to come to terms with his death. He'll have to just be the man that he was. He'll have to become the servant of God and he'll have to empty himself of all of the things that he had and he'll be the one that will lead and all the others will follow. The pattern is clearly there of what has been happening and what will be happening. Um, right now in Israel, there's great controversy over the place called Rachel's Tomb the place where Rachel died giving birth to the son of the right hand. It's a place near Bethlehem. And there's a great prophecy we've already seen fulfilled. Great sorrows, it said, the prophecy had to do with the death of the children at the birth of the Messiah when he came the first time. You remember Herod went and slayed the children in Bethlehem? And it talks about the prophecy of Rachel crying for her children. Because she's the one that's the symbol of giving birth to the Messiah, the son of the right hand. And right now in Israel today, it's the controversy over Rachel's tomb that's at the focal point right now. The Palestinians want Rachel's tomb to go away. They won't be successful on this one. They maybe make Joseph's tomb go away temporarily, but not Rachel's. Interesting, all these stories are tying back into the land right now and tied into it. Brethren, the Torah is giving us the picture of the Messiah. As I've said before, if we study Torah and we do not end up with the Messiah, we have missed the point of studying the Torah. 
And in Genesis and in these stories of the patriarchs, as I've said to you before, what happens to the patriarchs will happen to the descendants. We are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the stories of what happened to them are the same stories that affect us today. We should learn these stories. We should gain this understanding. We should be the true descendants with wisdom and knowledge, with understanding of the things that God was doing here. Let us be smarter than ancient teachers of Israel who couldn't understand the first concept. Let us be those who are wise and who have seen the Messiah. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Torah. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Jacob and how you called him, how you gave him a dream, how you showed him the ladder and the angels ascending and descending. Lord, there's much more that could be taught about this passage. But Lord, I would pray that for this session, for this time, that we'd get a vision of who the latter really is. Who is standing beside the Lord of heaven? Who is the one who is there, who ascends and descends? Who's the one that helps us to ascend into the presence of God? Who's the one that descended for our benefit? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful stories of the Torah and how they enlighten our soul and illuminate us. Truly, Moses was right. There's no idle word in the scripture. It is our very life. It's the very life, spiritual life, that we seek in you. I thank you, Lord, for this congregation, and I thank you for every person who humbles themselves and submits to the authority of this teaching. And I ask, Lord, that you would look down with kindness, with mercy, Lord, and that you would pour out your grace upon every soul that hears this instruction and that you might illuminate and make the Messiah real in their life and give them the experience of Jacob to peer up into the heavens and get a vision of who you really are. And I ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.